0: This is The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following episode may contain the names and voices of people who are deceased. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands across Australia and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise our enduring connection to the lands and waterways of this country and thank them for protecting and maintaining this country for us and future generations. In this series, our host Cameron Edwards interviews deadly physios from around Australia. And by deadly, we mean something that is awesome or fantastic. So join us as we have a yarn and enjoy some deadly stories.
1: Yama, and welcome to The Deadly Physios. We are honoured to have on as a guest today, Ellie White, who's a mutual friend of mine and we've had the privilege of meeting before and also worked with a guest on this show previously, Sarah Large. Now, before we begin the interview, Ellie, I want to pay my respects to the Durig mob on whose land I am speaking to you from today. Now, I want to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. A strong culture exists out here in Western Sydney, and I do want to pay my respects to them. Now, Ellie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who's your mob, and uh, where are you speaking to us from today?
2: Sure. Thanks for that, Cam, and thanks for having me. Um, before I begin, I'd also just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm speaking from today, the Wawundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. I think also working in healthcare, it's important that we acknowledge the use of traditional medicine and traditional healers in communities and the important role they've played in our mob for over 60,000 years. A little bit about me. I'm Ellie. I'm a proud Gidja woman, which is from the Kimberley region of northwestern Australia. My aboriginality stems from my father's side. Then I've also got some English heritage on my mum's side, and they're from Vanilla, which is in Victorian country.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Now, you mentioned something there. I don't know if our listeners have necessarily heard of that idea before about traditional healers. Do you mind maybe explaining a little bit more about what that might mean in culture? It's not something that I know of in a
2: lot of depth. I just know that in certain areas, they have different names for what they call their traditional healers. And it's something that's really, really significant to that mob and that community, and they play an important role. But in terms of what they do and how they go about their business, that's not something I really know much about, unfortunately.
1: Well, there's, a, there's two points there. that The unfortunately is interesting because it is a historical thing that unfortunately there is this disassociation between cultural ways and also our modern identity and, and trying to find roots back through the cultural lineages and, and roles, etc. And the other thing is that there are alternative ways of approaching healthcare. And I think they're both really interesting topics. And I hope to discuss a little bit about your thoughts on uh, uh, approaches to healthcare later on in this episode. But before we do, here comes the big one. <laughs> what makes you, Ellie White, a deadly physio?
2: I think there's a few things, being as modest as I possibly can be, that makes me a deadly physio. One of which is how hard I've worked to get to where I am at the moment. I'm the first in my family to have a university degree, which is quite common in Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal families. And then working at St Vincent's, where I'm currently based, which is where I've had the pleasure of working with Sarah Large. I'm the only Aboriginal staff member. And it's not something I'm proud of, but it's something that I really use as well as I can to advocate for our mob and hope that we can increase our staff numbers and get more mob working in the hospital so that we can provide better care to our own community. I'm proud of my patient care whether they're Aboriginal or whether they're not I think that makes me a a deadly physio and I think also my drive to make a positive change for our mob is one of my biggest strengths.
1: Sounds like a deadly answer to me, especially given that that was meant to be modest. No, in all honesty, that is what we look for in deadly physios, that advocacy, that passion for culture and for mob. But also, yes, absolutely, you worked hard and it is so great to hear that you were able to push through prejudices, to push through generational barriers to education, etc., to be able to be where you are today. And you did touch... A little bit on where you are today but talk us through the journey to actually becoming a physio why physio
2: it's been a long journey i grew up around a lot of sport which again is something that's quite common in aboriginal communities so if i wasn't playing sport i was trying to think of a way of how i could be involved and i guess a lot of us come into physio seeing the people on tv the sports physios and that was my idea of what the world of physio is so i was like I'm going to do some sports today, you know, cracks and backs, I'm all for it. And that was all I really knew of it. And then I started my physio degree doing the doctor of physio following a Bachelor of Exercise in Sports Science, thinking I was going to hopefully get into that elite sport pathway. And with my placements, we were based at hospitals and I was like, what is a cardio physio what do neuro do? And exposed to this whole new world of of our profession. And I absolutely loved it and found it so rewarding that, That's where I've ended up in the hospital setting where I am today.
1: And what about today? So talk us through, you know, the last year uh, of work in Ellie's Shoes. What kind of clinical areas are you passionate about or interested in?
2: I graduated in 2019 and started working as a physio at St. Vincent's Hospital in March. So right when the pandemic was starting. So my whole career has pretty much been covid so have really been thrown into the deep end with everything, but I've learned so much and have had such a supportive team around me um, and that we've all kind of gone through it together for the first time that we were learning on our feet. So it wasn't just me as a frantic new grad. It was of all of us that were a bit frantic together, which I think was comforting in a sense as well. So I'm currently a rotating grade one. So we rotate every four months and I'm currently based at one of our rehab hospitals in Kew working in neuro rehab, which I'm really enjoying.
1: Oh, it's an important thing to enjoy what you're doing and great to have that exposure as a level one going around. And for our listeners, this is the St. Vincent's down in Victoria because we do have one up here in Sydney that I know of. But that's important to note as well that, Ellie, you weren't just doing COVID in nice, you know, open city, so to speak, but you've experienced one of the hardest lockdowns in the world. Talk us through how that may have impacted your day-to-day work as a physio?
2: I think it was difficult in the sense that we didn't have an outlet from work that we normally do in terms of our social settings and going out to brunches and, and nice walks outside of our 5K. So we didn't really have that escape. And on the news, everything was COVID-related and work was all COVID-related. So it was a bit hard to, to separate work and outside of work. But I'm glad we're hopefully through the, the worst of it and we're a little bit more prepared with whatever might come.
1: Extreme resilience is what comes to mind when hearing about that. I mean, up here in Sydney, we only endured a a small lockdown in comparison. But I did find that, again, I I was quite privileged to be working with people that I didn't have to work from home by myself. And I had that social outlet, but it is very different to the type of activities and outdoor exercise that is an option when we're not in lockdown. Now, before you mentioned in your answer regarding being a deadly physio, this idea of advocacy at work. I'm just interested in how that plays out in your workplace. How do you advocate for your mom?
2: There's a few different things that I've done, a lot of which was with Sarah Large when she was working there as well. So we're trying to educate our staff and really get them thinking about Aboriginal health and and why is it so important and how can we better treat our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. So we started doing a morning tea during NAIDOC week, which I know it sounds very small, but we're trying to do lots of little steps to make a big difference. We also did a cultural safety in-service during NAIDOC week, which was based on a lot of questions that people raised with Sarah and I, as well as a few based on, the you can't ask that section as well we are getting an acknowledgement of country sign for our specific physio building and we have portfolios for each staff and we've recently just implemented an aboriginal and torres strait islander health portfolio to increase the sustainability of ongoing discussions about aboriginal health and how we can continue to improve how we treat them and also looking at how we could potentially form partnerships with local aboriginal and torres strait islander services because there's a lot in that Fitzroy area.
1: Goodness I think I'm going to have to unpack a little bit there. Number one small but it grows it grows and it was so encouraging to hear that some of this actually started from conversations between staff that people felt comfortable to come up You and ask questions is a testament to who you are, Ellie, and and who Sarah is as well. Approachable, I think that's another deadly attribute. Now, let's talk about educating staff. So, you had that morning tea. Is there anything else that you have been able to do, or ways in which you find it easy to educate staff, or, or systems that you might recommend? With our presentation, there were quite a few different
2: resources that we directed people to, a lot of which are on Instagram. There's lots of amazing resources there like Clothing the Gaps, Black Business, lots of things that are sharing Aboriginal stories and kind of projecting and amplifying Aboriginal voices because a lot of people might not have Aboriginal people in their social circles or their family and, and not be as exposed to it or or might be nervous about how to ask questions. But whereas these things, it's, it's important to educate yourself and then if you were to ask a question, know the best way to kind of go about it. Other resources... You Can't Ask That is another one. This podcast was one that we recommended as well.
1: TV shows, black music, there's so many. I've actually been quite astonished at the reach of this podcast and it's always encouraged me that it has become a resource in which people can use it for their personal learning. This was its intention, but it's great to see uh, that it's accomplishing its work. And I couldn't agree more. You know, we're going to come to one of my favourite little segments so You Can't Ask That shortly, but also, yes, that ABC series and and black music and black films and things like that are really great resources there. And as you said, it's all pretty simple. I mean, even Instagram and these social media sites have ways that we can or, or things that we can access to help educate ourselves. Now, the second thing I wanted to unpack there was the portfolio. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what's involved in that portfolio?
2: So that's only something new that I raised with my manager and he's a big advocate and pretty much takes on whatever i raise raised with him within reason. He's all for improving our cultural safety in the department and then wider as a St. Vincent's hospital. I'm not sure what it's like in other hospitals, but we each have a portfolio that we're assigned to so they can be different things like student coordination or our social committee or research. So we've got a specific one now that's set, which will be ongoing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, which I think is such a great idea and really helps to increase that sustainability and know that it is going to be part of the discussion for years to come and continue to build on the things that they organise so they'll be looking at organising morning teas and cultural events, getting speakers in throughout the year, notifying other staff members of culturally significant dates and just an outline of what that specific date means to our people and just in general increasing the knowledge of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and hopefully that helps to carry over to have better understanding of our patients and and how we can provide better care to them.
1: Wow, (laughs) that's what I have to say, wow. The idea of a portfolio is slightly novel to me and perhaps our listeners may be using other words in their workplaces, but to have one specifically for the purposes that you've just mentioned, I think is really admirable and forward thinking. So congratulations on that one. The last thing I've got for you out of what you mentioned before was the forming of partnerships. I want to know how you went about doing that so that our listeners can also follow in your footsteps.
2: So it's not something that is completed yet. We're still in the process of branching out to the community and figuring out what we can actually offer them and how we can come together, which has been difficult during COVID times. But also I think if they potentially come to our service when they're in in better health, like as an outpatient, then perhaps when they come, if they were to come as an inpatient, they have this background knowledge of St Vincent's has done this and they've helped us that hopefully that helps to make them feel more welcome and more trusting of our health service so that we can deliver
1: better care to them. Again, admirable. There is this reaching out to community that is something that I find people are often scared to do, to take that first step. Even the thought of it might be on people's minds, but picking up the phone can sometimes be hard. What would your advice be to people who are at that stage but haven't yet taken the step to engage with community?
2: I think you've got nothing to lose. We're such a welcoming and accepting mob that if you come to us wanting to help in any way, shape or form, we'd love to have you as part um, of an ally and for you to stand with us for a better future. So give it a shot. You've got nothing to lose.
1: Nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Here we go. We've got a question in which, Ellie, you have nothing to lose from as well, but everyone has something to gain from. On today's segment of You Can't Ask That, I want to ask you, why can't Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders just access healthcare like everyone else? What's so special about them? Something that we might hear with those racist undertones. And I'm interested in wondering how you would combat this type of question or the biases behind it.
2: I would try to combat it with a lot of education. There's a lot of reasons why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't access health like their non-Indigenous counterparts, all stemming back to colonisation and horrible things that occurred and still continue to occur and the ongoing effects of that through intergenerational trauma. A lot of Aboriginal people have a mistrust for government services stemming back to stolen generations, so I think... That's one of the main reasons, as well as the stereotypes and casual
1: racism and
2: prejudice that people might have without actually knowing
1: it. I sometimes wonder about this term casual racism. I know what it means, but it it just, it irks me only because of the term that racism can be casual and it upsets me that that can be the case. And I... I'm interested in what your thoughts are about any experiences you may have had with casual racism or intended racism, for that matter of fact. And then if you could give us a little bit more information on what intergenerational trauma might mean. I fortunately, which I
2: shouldn't have to say fortunately, because it shouldn't be something that I'm grateful for, but I haven't experienced any intentional racism. But that being said, I've, I've had a lot of family and friends that have had to experience horrible comments, which is completely unreasonable and unfair purely based on their culture. I've had a lot of casual racism over my life where people have said things that isn't true or isn't fair and they don't mean any harm by it, but (laughs) their comments have been quite hurtful. One that really stands out to me was actually at my workplace working with a patient and she told me that I was too pretty to be Aboriginal which is something that's quite common, unfortunately, that a lot of people experience. She went on to say different things about that, about being full Aboriginal and different percentages and that I would obviously rather be full white as opposed to full black, even though I continued to try to stop her. And I know, well, that wasn't very casual in her approach, but I know she didn't mean any harm, intentional harm, but I don't know how what her thought process was thinking that, these comments would be okay to say to anyone and for it to not be hurtful. So these comments do come up and they are hurtful so I encourage people to think before they say and to know their privilege and know the the way to word questions if you're not sure in a respectful way and also educate yourself to to know better as well. In terms of intergenerational trauma that's trauma that's being passed down through generations and generations. For example, my grandmother was a part of the Stolen Generations and that trauma could be passed down through my dad, through to me and eventually onto my children. So it's not necessarily that I've experienced that trauma myself, even though there has been trauma throughout my life, but not to the extent that my grandmother experienced. But there is an ongoing effect of what history is, has
1: helped. No, it, it's truly tragic to hear that you had to experience those words spoken to you, over you, about you, by someone who doesn't know which kind of person you want to be or who you thought you could be or who you would preference if you would change yourself at all to make these a snap judgment assessments. As you said, may not have meant that intentional harm, but we do need to think before we speak. You know, recently I just did some modules regarding NDIS clients and it was speaking about the way in which the clients are framed in terms of living with a disability rather than being a disabled person. And the language that we use is powerful. It then feeds into that intergenerational trauma. And I am staggered that people think that trauma can't be generational. I mean, it doesn't take very much to see that wealth can be generational and you know, success can be generational. Sure, there can be outliers and vice versa in a negative context when we talk about intergenerational trauma. I want to thank you so much, Ellie, for sharing that with us because it is personal stuff. It is becoming vulnerable to listeners, and we really appreciate that you felt comfortable to tell your story here today. Ellie, I want to talk to you about some other big subjects as well, and that's reconciliation and closing the gap. What are your personal thoughts or views on these two topics.
2: In terms of reconciliation, I actually had a conversation with my dad recently and it was quite thought provoking in terms of the wording of reconciliation. He thinks it's quite interesting to be worded that way, as in there was a previous conciliation because there was not in history. So it's, I guess, interesting to think about perhaps working towards conciliation initially before we actually think about reconciliation. And in terms of what I think about reconciliation, it's about coming together with our allies and amplifying black voices and sharing our stories and and truth-telling and listening to have a better future because we can't really do it without each other.
1: Absolutely. Life is a team sport, isn't it? And uh, it's interesting to think that we feel like we can, as a society, leave a group of people behind and it won't affect the psyche of the entire group as well. And regarding closing the gap, how do you approach that idea?
2: I guess like reconciliation and the work that I'm trying to do at my work is taking those small steps to hopefully help make a big difference in the long run and just doing my part and trying to get people to join me on my journey and my mission to improve the health of our people. So it's, it's not a quick fix. It's a long-term thing, but we can all make small steps to, to make a difference in the bigger picture.
1: I feel like you've really epitomized that actually, if we throw back to earlier this episode where you're talking about that morning tea, number one, I love food. So why not a morning tea? But also how you mentioned it was a small step, but really in the light of things, it's a step forward. And I think your view of those stepping forward, etc., that imagery that you've just given is very profound. It's very profound. We need to take a moment just to actually take that in and think about how we can be a part of stepping forward as well and closing the gap. Ellie, I am so impressed with these answers. You say you're only two years out. Oh, my goodness. How does the future look like? For Ellie, I mean, you've been rotating, you've had some exposure in some clinical areas. Have you mapped out the future yet exactly or what's your thoughts?
2: I haven't quite mapped out the future just yet. I think I'll continue rotating for a little bit longer and figure out my way as to which area of physio I enjoy the most, which is a tough decision because I have thoroughly enjoyed all of my rotations, which isn't a bad problem. And then I'd like to do become a grade two and perhaps do some more study. I'd love to do some maybe lecturing on the side as well about Aboriginal health because when I was studying, we didn't really have many Aboriginal physios. Well, I was the only one in my cohort, so I'd love to get back and encourage more people to come through and share my experiences working as an Aboriginal physio. Maybe one day I'll do some work in a remote community. We'll see.
1: It's really encouraging. To hear that, to hear that you are considering giving back already. I mean, a lot of people think it's all about me. I'm learning. I have to soak it all up early on. And But you're already <laughs> there, ready to give back. And it shows, again, the character of our guest today, Ellie. Ellie, I have another question about your uni experience. Since it's relatively fresh and you did mention that you were one of the only Aboriginal students in the cohort, I'm wondering what can be done within our university systems or our higher education systems in order to encourage, in order to mentor our students, to inspire them towards a career in physiotherapy?
2: That's such a tough question. I think creating more pathways, having Aboriginal physios speak to school students or undergrad students and tell them what an amazing profession we are and the great positive change that we can make. And also, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be physio, but just in general, promoting higher education and showing young Aboriginal students that it is an option because, like I said, I was the the first of my family to get a university degree. So I think it's quite common in Aboriginal communities that perhaps parents might have dropped out of school earlier or finished school but not gone on to uni with the rates of education that we all know about. So I think showing people that it's an option and, hey, you can do it, is a good start to getting more people coming through our university system.
1: You've really just nailed two nails on the head <laughs> with the, uh, the education approach as well as the healthcare approach towards closing the gap. You know, and when we look at the issues that still exist, if we can inspire those people, like you said, and demonstrate to them what success looks like in terms of physiotherapy and to show them that we believe in them as a profession as well number one, you you encourage someone like yourself to pursue a university degree, but then also to contribute, as you were saying before, as an advocate in the workforce to both colleagues, and then also in terms of creating better healthcare outcomes for patients. So for saying it was a hard question to begin with, I think you have given it a red hot go and had an excellent answer. Now, Ellie, as we do come to the end of this episode. I've got a couple of quickfire questions, as you'd be used to if you've listened to this podcast before. My question number one is, what is your favourite Indigenous word and what does it mean?
2: My favourite Indigenous word comes from my grandfather's country up in Badi at the top of WA, and it's called Irinum, which means together. And I think that encapsulates the majority of what I've spoken about today. And, talking about reconciliation and closing the gap and how we all need to come together. I think that's my favourite word.
1: I love it. I think togetherness is extremely important and you have summarised that in everything that you've said, in the way you've spoken even.
2: The word iranum is also the name of my little, very little, macrame business that I do on the side of physio that keeps me busy, especially in lockdowns.
1: How can our listeners access your products?
2: Uh, I have a website and also an Instagram, which is just iranum, I-R-R-N-I-M.
1: Then my next question is, what is one word that would summarise what reconciliation and closing the gap means to you?
2: I think that is, again, iranum, coming together, working together, having a brighter future together. That's my one word that summarises it.
1: If it's not emphatic enough to our listeners that we need to work together on this, I think unless there is a song called Together, that is enough of an impetus to start to look to how we can work together for all of those things that you've mentioned today, working in some new novel areas in which we can close the gap and bring reconciliation to communities all across Australia. My final question is the song, the artist. Who is your favourite Indigenous artist of choice? And a song by them and why? Alma Plum
2: and her song Better in Black. Not only is it a really catchy song that I love, I think the message behind the lyrics is, is so powerful. It empowers black women and and makes me feel really proud of my strong identity and my heritage and... We are who we are and we wouldn't want to be anyone else.
1: Now, Ellie, you've got me going. I've, I've just got it ringing in my head now. I love that song so much and can't wait to hear the response of all our listeners as they listen to that song and get that deeper meaning, as you've mentioned, that empowering meaning. Ellie, I am so grateful for your time. You really have empowered our listeners to go out, to educate themselves, to draw together in community. And again, wisdom beyond years. I want to thank you so much, Ellie, on behalf of The Deadly Physios for your time today.
2: Thanks, Cam. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. To learn more about this episode's guest and the Deadly Physio series, head to our website at australian.physio forward slash the Deadly Physios. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review.